0: Also big news this week, the pandemic continues, and the rollout of the vaccine so far in the United States has been moving at a slower pace than expected. In California, where the state is experiencing huge coronavirus numbers and shortages of equipment and oxygen, only 35% of doses that have arrived have been administered. Governor Gavin Newsom has a plan to speed things up, but confidence is low. For more on why the rollout hasn't gone as expected, we'll speak to Colleen Shelby, reporter at the LA Times.
1: There seems to be a variety of factors that are playing into this sluggish rollout that we're seeing. One big one that we reported on last week was the fact that there are frontline workers throughout the state that are turning down the vaccine. And there's no hard numbers at this point of how many, but anecdotally, some county officials in different counties said that they were hearing, you know, as many as 40 to 50 percent were declining the shot or asking to wait. So relatedly, when you have an extra vaccine dose you need to figure out what to do with it because there's you know a limited shelf life it's about 6 hours before a vaccine vial goes to waste and because there's no streamlined process right now of how to distribute leftover vaccines there's now another scramble that takes place of you know figuring out how to get somebody in line that might not be prioritized those are two big things that are kind of playing out right now definitely not the only issues but two that we're paying attention to a lot and are noticing that it must be a factor in some way.
0: Yeah. Let's expand on that a little bit if we can, because the logistical hurdles of this are, are pretty big and we're working on this tiered system where obviously we've heard of it, you know, frontline healthcare workers and people in nursing homes are first in line to get it. But if a lot of frontline healthcare workers are refusing to get it, do you fall further down the line? Do you look for other people still in that first tier? And this is one of those things that's complicating things because they have to be, as you mentioned, you know, there's a limited number, they have to be done with a certain amount of time. And very quickly, that time can be used up.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we heard from a hospital that said that they had distributed doses to several non frontline workers after giving access to all eligible staff. And they told us that that included technicians and custodial workers. But you know, it seems pretty unclear in certain regards what to do with those extra doses. And, at first, last week, you know, we were hearing that if people jump the lines, hospitals could be sanctioned, there could be penalty, versus this week, the message really seems to be about, okay, we need to figure out what to do with these doses so they don't go to waste, and how can we make the guidance a little softer so people who might not be at the front of the line are eligible to receive it just simply so you're not throwing out a good vaccine dose.
0: Yeah, that's a tough position to be in when healthcare providers are trying to follow the rules. And then, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom comes out and says, well, you know, when it comes to enforcement, we're not looking at those types of situations. We're looking at people legitimately trying to skip the line kind of things. But for the healthcare providers, they're looking out for themselves too and trying to follow the rules. It's kind of, you hear this and we're hearing other stories in Northern California specifically There was a hospital that one of their freezers broke and the vaccine was very quickly getting to that point of not being viable anymore. So they put out the call and said, hey, anybody that can come and wants to get the vaccine, come now, get it. And I think there was 600 vaccine shots that they were scrambling to give out in about two hours. So, you know, this is just kind of the compare and contrast for how this thing has been going on.
1: That's right. My colleague, Anita Shabia, she wrote about that earlier. And it seems to be a situation that's not as uncommon as we initially believed it to be. Um, You know, a week or two ago when we were hearing instances of anecdotes of, you know, someone getting the vaccine that wasn't a frontline worker or a nursing home resident or staff member, it seemed like these, you know, one-off moments. But what we're hearing now is that it's happening more and more This instance was very specific with the broken freezer, but it does seem that other areas are having to kind of turn to this type of distribution scramble at times as well.
0: Yeah, there was an issue in New Mexico. They lost about 75 doses on Christmas Day in Connecticut. There was a power outage caused by one of the winter storms. So they had to do kind of a similar thing, just try to distribute as many as they could before they weren't able to be used anymore. So, yeah, these are some of the big problems. What has the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, said on how he plans to At least help fix the issue. My understanding is he wants to increase the number of distribution sites and then allow other professionals to be able to administer these shots as well.
1: Right. We learned that dentists are now going to be signed off to train to be vaccine distributors or facilitators, which would potentially help on the administration end. You know, if there's not enough people who are able to give someone a shot, this could very well help that. The state is also trying to track how many frontline workers are turning down the vaccine. And at the county level, I think they're trying to use that data to better figure out who they need to educate and how they can help with the overall vaccine hesitancy that may be taking place. And then the state is also trying to soften the guidance in terms of who can get the vaccine. I know Governor Newsom talked about that yesterday, and it's possible that we'd see different language pop up this week. The vaccine advisory committee is meeting tomorrow, and that's a 60 member team of various people throughout the state. So, we may learn more about how people are going to be prioritized if changes may shift. That should be an interesting three hour long conversation to listen to.
0: Definitely. And, you know, we've seen a lot of people hesitant to take the vaccine, as you mentioned, with even with these frontline healthcare workers, and that just keeps posing that continued problem. Well, then, who's next to step up into the line in those situations that we briefly talked about in Northern California and trying to get rid of those other shots, people came and showed up for those vaccinations. So it's not like there's not people wanting to take these shots. And the governor said over the next week, we're going to get over 600,000 vaccine doses. So, you know, I'm wondering if it will run into some of these problems and how it'll be resolved. So all stuff to look out for. Colleen Shelby, reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. On the economic front, months into the pandemic, one million Americans are still waiting for unemployment aid. Deep backlogs are contributing to some not getting financial aid, but also to blame are extensive fraud prevention checks, old computer systems, and applications getting flagged for extra scrutiny. Any claim set aside for a manual review can take months to resolve. For more on why it's so hard to get unemployment benefits, we'll speak to Heather Long, economic correspondent at the Washington Post.
2: Obviously, we know millions of people lost their jobs because of this pandemic. And the really sad part is people who applied some in March and April for unemployment insurance through their state still haven't gotten it. You know, we talked to a Hilton bartender in Savannah, you know, loses his job, served his last drink March 14th. Uh, He's out of work March 15th. And he still had not received any money from the unemployment system in the state of Georgia as of December when we spoke with him. He was finally paid December 31st after the Washington Post inquired about his case. And we just heard that over and over again. We took a deeper look at the numbers and we found at least 1.2 million people are in a similar situation to that bartender. And obviously, if you haven't had any money coming in for months, these people are losing their homes, they're unable to pay for their they're unable to buy food and running up credit card debt. We just heard horror story after horror story.
0: And just to put a kind of a number to that, that bartender that you were talking about when he finally received his unemployment aid, uh, it was on December 31st that he got it. It was $14,000. So think of that number over the course of months that he, you know, he should have been getting this money just to help him get through. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of stories that are like this. So let's talk about the biggest reasons for these delays. So we're seeing extensive fraud prevention checks. A lot of these states have antiquated computer systems, which we know has been a long problem for now. And then a lot of these applications are getting flagged for extra scrutiny. And when that happens, it adds months to it right off the bat because of the backlog is so big.
2: You've done a great job summarizing it. I think one of the biggest issues, obviously nobody wants a bunch of this money to go to people who are scammers or fraudsters. But the problem is a lot of states have implemented such a high hurdle. You have to provide more information to the state unemployment office than you do to get a driver's license or even a real ID in most states. And so to give a concrete example, we talked to a woman, Michelle, in Pennsylvania, You know, lost her job at a live events company in March, pretty similar story. And she you know thought she had provided all the documentation she provided a copy of her driver's license her passport her birth certificate her utility bills her landline phone that she still had that bill and she called in and was like what's going on you know why hasn't my paperwork gone through and they said well you you didn't provide a photo of the back of your birth certificate. She said, well, the back of my birth certificate is blank. You know, there's nothing on it. It's the same for mine. And so it's just these things where you're sitting there scratching your head like this is just silliness that's preventing these people from getting the benefits they deserve.
0: You mentioned fraud and and there is some fraud. I think California was an example where Bank of America estimated that they paid up to two billion dollars in fraudulent claims. What are we seeing on that front? Obviously, there has
2: been any time you have 50 million people who've applied for unemployment this year. And there's bound to be some that are scammers or fraudsters. And we've seen that with a number of the government programs in 2020. But again, it's that balance between at the same time, as our article points out, there's people who have very valid cases and they are Getting these months-long delays, so there needs to be a middle ground here. And one of the biggest issues we're seeing is anytime someone gets flagged for manual review. So basically, if there's any hitch in the case, like that woman who didn't have the back of her birth certificate photographed, or you know, somebody who makes a typo, heaven help them in their application, or there's any sort of extenuating circumstance, like maybe if you quit your job, you normally don't apply, can't apply for unemployment, but in 2020 you could if you quit your job to say. Take care of a sick relative or take care of kids who are home from school, you know, your application will get flagged for extra review. And there just weren't enough people who are working in these state unemployment offices who had that senior investigator, or senior review title to be able to review these cases. And so that's what these months long delays. I talked to one woman who'd been waiting over five months. They told her, well, maybe someone will call you in February 2021 about your situation.
0: You know, states had to implement a lot of these new programs from scratch. So sometimes people don't qualify for the regular unemployment aid, but they might qualify for the aid under you know new COVID rules. And when it specifically when it comes to gig workers, it's very tough to calculate their money because, you know, a gig worker's income can fluctuate from week to week. So having to do those calculations, these are a lot of the things that are increasing the backlog, really.
2: Exactly. Congress did create a new program last year to help self-employed and gig workers, including Uber and Lyft drivers, among many others. And that was called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance or PUA. There are roughly nine million people who were on that program in December. So this is not some little side program. This turned out to be a real key saving lifeline for a lot of people, but states handled it very differently because it was a brand new program. Some of them, like the state of Georgia, required quite extensive documentation before they would release any funds. Other states took the approach that they sort of gave people the benefit of the doubt if they could provide any documentation that they had a job before the COVID hit they would at least pay people the minimum amount. Now, the minimum amount is oh, barely over over $100 a week. So people were definitely not getting rich off of PUA, but they sort of erred on the side of caution. I think the real bottom line here, two big takeaways for listeners. Number one is we should have been upgrading and investing in state unemployment offices for years. And there was years of neglect. And some of these states were running computer programs from the 60s, 70s and 80s. And that's just unacceptable. And the second thing is our unemployment system is still geared in this country towards factory workers. Again, basically the mentality of serving workers from the 1980s. We know we have a lot more gig workers. We know we have a lot more people working multiple jobs or working across state lines. All of this, really is not built into our state or our, to our unemployment system. And that's been a huge, huge problem. That's why so many people are slipping through the cracks. We were not
0: ready. Heather Long, economic correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this week, the pandemic has taken a toll on relationships in many ways. But interestingly, both marriages and divorces are down. Many had to cancel or postpone weddings due to lockdowns, and on the other side, some are avoiding divorce for practical reasons and economic uncertainty. The big question is, will these tick back up after the pandemic is over? For more on why these rates might be falling, we'll speak to Ben Steverman, reporter at Bloomberg News. We
3: don't have the full numbers for the entire United States, but what we do have is a study that just came out that looks at five states, including one big one, Florida just looks at a few months of the year, most of the year, and says, how does this compare to what we expected? And it turns out that marriages and divorces are way below previous year's trends. Marriages, maybe that's not surprising. A lot of people postponed their weddings for obvious reasons last year. But with divorces there was this idea that quarantine was putting a lot of stress on relationships but so far we're finding that you know we're not seeing the filings come through in Florida which is again the largest state that people looked at marriages are 33% lower than expected and divorces are 28% lower if you extrapolate the numbers that we're seeing in these five states nationwide you're talking about more than 300,000 marriages that probably would have happened, but didn't. And almost 200,000 divorces that basically were either postponed or aren't materializing this year.
0: Yeah, this is a study that was coming out of Bowling Green State University. The five states that they looked at, uh, as you mentioned, Florida, Arizona, New Hampshire, Missouri, and Oregon. So they all saw these numbers drop. I think Arizona was maybe an outlier in some of the, the numbers there. But you know, you kind of mentioned a little bit of, you know, one of the big reasons why. So a lot of things were postponed. Maybe there was a lot of closures, government-wide, government offices. So it was maybe harder, obviously, to even get those marriage plans going. And, and you know, you couldn't organize with large groups of people. But on the same side, divorces too, even still hard to get all the paperwork filed and, and to go through all that. So, you know, what you kind of see is a lot of couples maybe staying together for practical reasons, money reasons, other things.
3: Yeah, and when you think about a divorce, you know there is, in some ways, you can imagine it being pretty simple to divide up your assets. But for a lot of couples who are going through divorces, especially people with children or businesses or complicated finances, this is a terrible time to get a divorce. I talk to divorce lawyers, and they say a lot of these people are just sort of feeling stuck, and they're not ready to make a big decision right now. So their relationship might not be doing well, but. For example, how do you decide on child custody issues right now if daycares are closed or schools are closed? How do you decide what that business is is worth if, you know, it's a restaurant that's closed or doing really badly? So a lot of those things are going to get pushed out probably to next year. And you know, maybe we'll see, so maybe some people will actually work through their issues and the divorces that they would have actually happened last year maybe never happened at all and maybe people uh, learn to stay together.
0: One of the uh, contrasts in all of this, we look to China for some of their numbers. And that's why I guess this kind of makes it a little more significant. You know, there were a lot of filings for divorce in China when they were coming out of quarantine. So maybe this is kind of a particular thing that's going on in the United States only.
3: Yeah. And it could be different in different parts of the country. So we might not have the full picture here. I But I definitely think that we'll be looking forward, you know, looking in 2021, really kind of watching these numbers and saying, Is there this pent up demand for divorce and marriage, or do some of the divorces and, and marriages that were supposed to happen maybe they'll never happen? And you know, part of the longer term trend in the US, which might be different from other countries, is that divorce and marriage have both been declining for many years here, and so. Does that trend actually kind of accelerate because of the pandemic? Or maybe, you know, people, I've known some people who've, who've started dating this year and found people. So so maybe there's a pent-up demand and maybe next year things will really bounce back.
0: Yeah, you, you posed a really good question in your article. You know, how many of these weddings that might've been called off in 2020 will eventually go ahead? And as you mentioned, kind of, kind of how you're saying with this generation right now, waiting longer to get married, things like that. Like, how will this impact That trend. And that's just something that we're going to have to wait to see, but definitely something to watch out for.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've seen couples, especially young people, being much more selective about who they marry. And you have a lot of people who've just kind of foregoing marriage altogether. And you've also seen people who, the people who actually end up getting married in the US these days, are more likely to stay together because, you know, they're sort of a self selected group of people who aren't just entering into these relationships in a casual way. So we could see those trends
0: continue or we could see a change.
3: This has been a crazy nine months of our lives and it'll be fascinating to see how society changes and how attitudes change.
0: Ben Steverman, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.